How much flexibility do you have in what you do? Whether you're working a job in the service industry or the medical field or sales, or whether you're a student or anything other than independently wealthy or fully retired, how much can you change about what your daily tasks are and what you produce? Do you have the freedom to get up and say to yourself, I'm doing things completely differently today, a whole new approach? My guess is that very, very few have that luxury. Well, music artists can be among those very few, and I believe that so much of the way we perceive them stems from admiration and envy. Envy which at times can cross over into shades of resentment, based on their creative freedom. How many times have you heard someone talk about how green the grass must be for musicians? It's a thing. Your relationship to music is likely to have at least some basis in this psychology. But think about how music artists have to meet the expectations of their audience to have any creative freedom to begin with. Can you recall any artists that followed their muse so far off the beaten path that almost no one followed them there? Do you remember when Garth Brooks became Chris Gaines? Led Balloon City. Or Lou Reed's Metal Machine music album? More people demanded their money back than for any album in history. Bob Dylan's Christmas album? Actually, our man Jack Frost had plenty of fans scoop that one up, but still, you see where I'm going with this. As an artist, to get to the point where you can go off in another direction than the one that has paid at least some of your bills so far is a tall, tall order. It is not only hard to be in the position to follow one's muse into the unknown, but even harder to make it a success. Back in 1989, Bela Fleck pulled off one of the most striking reinventions in Roots music history when upon the dissolution of his band Newgrass Revival, he went into uncharted territory with his group The Flecktones whose sound was nothing short of a revelation, and found critical and commercial success while redefining what was possible with his instrument, the banjo. It was a move that came with some apprehension. How would his already well-established audience react? Would he be viewed as a kind of prodigal son, leaving what were some pretty green pastures for a place fans would not want to go? Uh, what's the word? You're, you're not stabbing bluegrass in the back when you go off and do something else. You're actually bringing bluegrass to a wider audience. And that's what I learned when I went out with the Flecktones, which is nothing like a bluegrass band whatsoever. That is our guest, Bela Fleck, answering the question of how things went for him after taking the leap from Newgrass to the Flecktones. And now, decades later, Bela has returned to his roots and is being welcomed back with open arms. His latest album, My Bluegrass Heart, is what he calls the third chapter in a trilogy which began with his 1988 album, Drive, and continued with his 1999 collection titled Bluegrass Sessions, all of which feature band members Sam Bush, Jerry Douglas, Stuart Duncan, and Mark Schatz. Now, he adds to that top-flight roster of players a who's who of younger players for My Bluegrass Heart, with Molly Tuttle, Billy Strings, Michael Cleveland, Sierra Hall, Chris Thiele, and even fellow banjo players like his former student, Noam Pakelny, and his former teacher, Tony Trishka, to name just some of the many stars in Bela's orbit on this two-disc set. I sat with Bela Fleck in downtown Raleigh, North Carolina, at the convention center where the International Bluegrass Music Association was holding its annual conference and festival, an event which saw Bela win Album of the Year, Instrumental Group of the Year, Instrumental Recording of the Year, and Banjo Player of the Year. My Bluegrass Heart won a Grammy Award for Best Bluegrass Album 2. Open arms indeed. 
In the hours before those IBMA awards came his way, we spoke about his return to bluegrass, how the form is underestimated among many in other circles, what he thinks Roots music needs most right now, which, to give you a hint, is not more instrumental virtuosos, his dream collaborations, and much more. Plus, some music from My Bluegrass Heart, like the song you're hearing now, Vertigo, which won Recording of the Year at IBMA. I'm your host, Joe Kendrick, and this is our episode on Bela Fleck on Southern Songs and Stories. Songs and Stories is part of the podcast lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media. Osiris creates music podcasts and events to help music fans deepen their connection to the music they love with all of their shows at OsirisPod.com. Osiris works in partnership with Jam Bass, which connects music fans to the music they love and empowers them to go see live music. Capsule versions of Southern Songs and Stories are produced for broadcast on WNCW by me, Corey Askew. More information about this and other podcasts from Grassroots Radio, WNCW at WNCW.org. Before seeing him in Raleigh earlier that month, I caught Bela Fleck at the inaugural Earl Scruggs Music Festival, which he followed immediately by driving nonstop to a show in Maine the next night. Well, he didn't drive, but two bus drivers did on alternating shifts. In between then and IBMA, among other dates, he played a banjo concerto in Kingston, Tennessee, which he wrote for his son, the Juno Concerto. Here's Bela Fleck. Well, I've gotten to write three banjo concertos right now. And um, for anyone who doesn't know, because I didn't know exactly, a concerto is like a, um, a virtuoso piece with a soloist and an orchestra. So you've got the orchestra and the soloist down front. Typically, it might be a violin soloist or a piano soloist or any instrument in the orchestra. But in this case, it's a banjo. And there hadn't really been one uh, that I knew of. And I, I wrote my first one. Well, I could, I, there were a couple, like it was like a folk banjo concerto, but nothing in the kind of uh, technical level that I would, was hoping to see and that I would want to play. So I ended up having to write, write the first one, which was called The Imposter because I felt like an imposter in front of the orchestra <laughs> playing the banjo. And then the second one was the Juno Concerto for my son Juno. And the third one's uh, commissioned for the uh, uh, New Orleans uh, Symphony for their tricentennial. So there, now there's three, and I think that might be enough. It takes a lot of work to write one of those pieces. You're just writing for months and months and months, and it's, re- it's really fun. It's really incredible to hear the orchestra finally playing it, but it's a big task. Those are, how long are they? Um, the first one was 36 minutes, which was a bit long for a concerto. And the second one, I think, is, is more like a 20, 27, 28, something like that. So you've almost left no stone unturned at this point, musically. Well, there's always stones. And you could also, also uh, you know, dig a little deeper into, into different areas. Just the other day, you're asking about another day in the life, the day before we left. This great Indian musician, Zakir Hussain and Rakesh Chaurasia, came to meet me and Edgar Meyer to do a photo shoot for a project we're doing, which is very much a blend of a lot of stuff, like uh, 
Indian music, Indian classical music, American, you know, not, I guess European classical music like Edgar knows, and then bluegrass and all the different kinds of musics we all do. And we had a photo shoot for that. So that that's a neat stone, you know, exploring, um, collaborating with people from different countries, especially with instruments that are unusual to us, just like the banjo is unusual to them, you know. You find these ways, like going to Africa was a good example of that, and finding people from Africa to jam with and play with and create music with. Um, but I love playing with jazz musicians too, because it's, it's hard. <laughs> and so playing with people like Chick Corea and Marcus Roberts and Branford Marsalis, you know, I just really have to push to hang in there with those guys. And I, I like the push. I like working hard. So now that you've got up to speed with My Bluegrass Heart, yeah. how does that feel? It's been really great. It's like a return to this this world of music. I kind of re-entered it a bit with Abigail doing our two banjo uh, music, um, but it, it it wasn't bluegrass. Like bluegrass is such an exacting thing, and even though my music is clearly on the fringes of bluegrass, it follows a lot. It obeys a lot of the rules um, of bluegrass music in terms of the way the instruments interact with each other, the kind of timing you need to play with, that that forward lean. Um, the kind of listening that needs to go on to make bluegrass music good. And then, um, you know, as I said, we're on the edge. We're trying new things with it, but we're trying to keep that, the, the certain things about the, the ancient qualities of the music intact while trying new things. So for this record, I got to play with so many great people, old friends, Sam Bush, Jerry Douglas, Stuart Duncan, folks like that, Edgar Meyer. Um, but also I got to start collaborating with some of the next generation of people that I hadn't played with before and recorded with people like Sierra Hull, Molly, Molly Tuttle, uh, Michael Cleveland, you know, um, so many people. And so the album ended up being a double album and a return to bluegrass. I hadn't done anything since 1999. That was with Tony Rice and Sam and Jerry, bluegrass sessions. So it had really gotten way too long and I was missing it. Um, and I, I guess you could say I left bluegrass to start the Flectones in, at the end of uh, uh, 1989 when Newgrass Revival uh, split up and I started you know, existing outside of the bluegrass world. And th that's the last time I was nominated for a, uh, a, a Best Banjo Player at IBMA was 19, 1990. And, and I won that year, it was the first year of the awards, but I haven't been, uh, been in it since then. This is the first time for me. Um, for those people to, um, well, I made a project that made sense to them. You know what I mean? I, I totally get it, and I think it's appropriate. But it feels good, because it's a community that I love, and I always feel a part of it, even when I've been away from them. Um, I'm just the kind of person that has to do a lot of new stuff. You know, maybe it's attention deficit disorder. I don't know. But I've, I've got to be learning new things, or I, I just lose my will, you know, to to move forward, to, to care about it. So that keeps me going. So for, for me, coming back to bluegrass, but in a new way, feels really good because it was a real community effort among the musicians. And um, another thing that I think about sometimes is how, um, I don't want to say that bluegrass is looked down on, but I just don't think people quite realize in the jazz world and the, you know, the world music world and the classical world, the sheer technical quality and heart that bluegrass musicians play with. And so for me, having established myself more firmly in those worlds, when I make a project like this, a lot of people will check it out who wouldn't normally listen to bluegrass, and they go, holy cow, wow, these people can play. What a community. And so that for me, this, is, this, this record is about you know, reconnecting with that community after a long time of being away from it and uh, celebrating it. 
especially the instrumental side, although I love the bluegrass side. I'm not a singer. I mean, I love the vocal side. I'm not a singer, and so I've always tended to love the people that were doing modern stuff on the instruments and, and traditional stuff. And I love the, blue, the bluegrass vocals, but I'm going to come at it as an instrumentalist, which I am. And in the jazz world and the classical world, it's very typical to do music without vocals, and it's completely normal. So for me, it always made sense, that, and I thought you should be able to do a whole album of, you know, of, of progressive bluegrass um, that's instrumental and have it work. And uh, but on the shows, I've found that it's really nice to go hit some altered trad vocals in the middle of the set, especially when I have great singers, um, which I often do in the band. Right? Yeah. All right, gang. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right, here we go. This is Wheels Up by Bela Fleck from My Bluegrass Heart, featuring Sierra Hall and Molly Tuttle. Sierra, who won Mandolin Player of the Year at the IBMA Awards in 2022, and Molly Tuttle, who won Female Vocalist of the Year at those same awards ceremony, are part of the sprawling roster of musicians playing on My Bluegrass Heart. It is a roster that grew and grew as the project came into focus, after beginning as a band of players that Bela had not played with much before, Paul Cowart, Michael Cleveland, Dominic Leslie, and Cody Kilby. I asked Bela about his take on younger generations of players because not only were they so well represented on My Bluegrass Heart, but because bluegrass and old time especially has young players coming up in the tradition in waves. At IBMA, for example, you cannot miss the scores of highly proficient grade school and teenage pickers playing all over the convention center. There are so many that I wondered if there would be some kind of tipping point with more virtuoso players on the scene, then there would be enough of an audience to support them. I think it's frustrating when you go someplace like Ireland where they, they celebrate the, the music, uh, you know, they teach it in the schools and they, they consider it to be a part of their heritage. The whole country is 100% behind traditional Irish music and, and Scotland too. It's just part of their lives. Um, and here it's a very much of a fringe thing in terms of the audience. We have these waves, as you said, but I think of waves like when you had... Um, dueling banjos come out or with you know certain folk periods where a big thing would happen and the whole world would know what bluegrass was or banjo music was and it would get real big for a little while oh brother where art thou was a good, a good example of it and you get these you know periods that spark the next wave because all of these folks hear the banjo and get excited about it and learn and then 10 15 years later all of a sudden you've got you know me you've got uh noam Pakelny, you've got all these people that come out of these waves um but that doesn't mean they're always there, you know. So the part of the job of all these musicians is to figure out how to reach an audience and build an audience. Because one of the things that I've realized doing my weird instrumental trip, which I know is a fringy, weird thing, and I'm fortunate because I get an, enough of an audience to continue to do it. And the, what I realize is there are all these musicians 
who are capable of playing my music now. And there, there weren't back in the, in the 80s. There was only a few who could. And now there's a ton of them. And they don't really have a place to play that way. And so it's not hard for me to find phenomenal people to play with. It's frustrating to me that they don't have a lot of places that they could play that way for an, for an audience. And so I, I've always felt that in bluegrass there are never as many great vocalists as great players. Great players are, are falling out of the trees right now, and that's great. But they have to figure out how to build an audience and grow an audience that they can share with the rest of this scene. You know what I mean? That's the hard part. And playing is one thing, and it's a talent, and not everybody can get to that level. But we are, we're doing well in that regard. There's more fiddlers, banjo players, mandolin players breaking new ground and playing you know, very much in their own ways at a very high technical level than there have ever been. And that's great, but they've got to find a, a way to work. In the, or in, the, in the classical world, if you're a violinist, you know, there's a zillion great violinists, they have a place they can go work. There's the orchestras, there's teaching, there's all these um, string quartets, there's all these places where they can use those abilities that they've you know, worked so hard to, to achieve, these, this, this able level. And, and here we have a problem with that. So, like you said, there's, um, there's these festivals, there's IBMA, there's these, these great, um, solid, big opportunity, you know, large audience situations, but there aren't necessarily enough of them to feed and clothe this whole generation, and they are the ones that have to figure it out. And that's why you see somebody, a Molly Tuttle or a Sierra Hull, I mean, certainly on a creative side, they want to explore new ground, but they actually need to. They need to find a way to go and engage with the greater world outside of the bluegrass scene. Um, and even someone like Ricky Skaggs went and did that, you know, found his way to build a larger audience by going outside of bluegrass. But you bring your bluegrass with you. It's, you're not, um, uh, what's the word? You're, you're not stabbing bluegrass in the back when you go off and do something else. You're actually bringing bluegrass to a wider audience. And that's what I learned when I went out with the Flectones, which is nothing like a bluegrass band whatsoever. Anywhere I went in the world, I felt, felt that the most important thing that I did when it was time for me to do a solo was play some bluegrass and represent bluegrass. If I was in China, if I was in you know, uh, India, Africa, all these different places, I would always instead of like trying to play some jazzy thing or some classical thing or some show-offy piece, I'd go, no, I'm gonna play Earl Scruggs because this is, this is um, it's my chance to show all these people this great thing that they don't, they're not gonna know about. So we all have to do that as bluegrass musicians. We have to go out and spread the word. The community is resilient and the players are resourceful. It's always been that way. It's never been easy. Right. Bluegrass and Roots music was never big marquee material. Right. So, for example, in the 90s, when alternative music was the rage, you had a lot of people getting into music to make money. Right. That wasn't the right reason to get right. into music, but and then they got weeded out with right. the, the digital age that came in the following decade. But bluegrass has always been there for the right reasons. Right. Well, you can point at a certain you know, few people and you go, well, well, you know, Alison Krauss is doing good. She comes from bluegrass. She's obviously doing different things now. It's a big piece of her... Uh, I'm doing okay, Vince Gill is doing okay. You know, these people that are firmly from this music have found ways to do their thing and they are constantly um, paying homage to bluegrass every chance they get uh, and, and collaborating with people and trying to lift other people up. But they're, they're the outliers. They're not the, your basic, you know, garden variety bluegrass player. I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. I just mean that they're lucky they've managed to have a combination of skills, um, personality, sheer luck that they've been able to become celebrities in their own right outside of whether they're bluegrass musicians or not. 
So everybody can look to those people and go, oh, you know, maybe I can make it big like those guys. But um, it's very few people. And my son is a golfer. You know, he's, he's uh, nine years old. He's a really good golfer. He wins tournaments and stuff. But there's so many golfers. It's the same kind of thing. Like everybody goes, oh, is he going to be the next Tiger Woods? I'm like, have you seen how many kids are out there? playing you know it's a th it's thick so you know you just got to get real so um i always tell people that you know going out and performing isn't the only way to use your bluegrass skills there's places for people in management there's places for bookers there are people who can teach there are people who can run schools there are people who can teach dance there's people you know all your skills at at, at bluegrass that you've learned as a musician could also set you up for another kind of career that's connected and helps bluegrass you know, everybody doesn't have to be the soloist, the star, and they can't be. So um, yeah, I think about all that kind of stuff. As Bayless said, not everybody in the scene can or should be a star, but some are deservedly household names in more and more circles, even outside of Roots Music. Here is a bit of Slippery Eel from My Bluegrass Heart, featuring two such names, Billy Strings and Chris Thiele. <laughs> Fleck has played with artists from around the world, so many that you might wonder who is left that he might not have played with. I asked him who he might still have in mind to collaborate with. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of people I'd love to play with, you know, um, but uh, yeah, um, I, I really feel like um, in this world, I got, to, I got to cherry pick. That's the thing about a record that's not a tour. You can cherry pick and hope if everybody's available, they can show up and you can have the top people. Now getting them to go on tour with you is another thing altogether. A lot of people can't, can't, can't do that. The people that you want. They've got lives. They're busy. They have bands. They've got people they're, they're responsible to. So um, what I'm amazed with is that I get to keep on cherry picking people and if I can't get this person I get to try that person. I couldn't get Michael. Like I was able to get Stuart Duncan. I couldn't get Stuart. I was able to get Billy Contreras. I couldn't get Brian Sutton. I was able to get Co Cody Kilby. Uh, and Sean Richardson, and these guys all bring new things to the music. So I'm not really answering your, quest your question. I'm sort of side-slipping a little bit, but um, in the bluegrass world, I feel like I'm playing with the very best people that, that are on the scene and the ones that I haven't met yet and don't know about yet. Hopefully I will. Um, in the jazz world, I have a lot of people that I, I, mean, I would love to play with. Herbie Hancock, I would love to play with Pat Metheny. Um, there's just so many great musicians in that world that, that because I'm a, in not firmly in it. I'm kind of on the edge of it. Hmm. Um, I, um, I don't know or haven't gotten to meet, and I love that music too. And on the classical side as well, there are people that just 
blow me away. I don't know what we'd play. We'd have to write something or play, you know, or transcribe something that exists. But Hilary Hahn is another person that I love. Her violin playing is just stunning to me. Um, and there's something we could do, and maybe, you know, maybe it will happen. You know, you never know. All right. We'll leave that box open. Okay. Checked about everything oh, else. Oh, you too. I want to collaborate with you too. I want them to call me up and let me play banjo on a U2 record. Please. That would if be you're fantastic. If you this, Bono. <laughs> you made a comment once about having to get back up to speed with my bluegrass heart. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And this, the speed that the youngsters play, too, is, is faster. I, mean, I, I used to love to play really fast. And in newgrass, we would get to do maybe one or two a night. And it would be a straight-up bluegrass thing. But... Uh, as we play this stuff on tour with folks like Michael Cleveland and and uh, and Sierra and uh, Brian Sutton, there's no speed limit for these guys. So gradually the songs start getting faster and faster till all of a sudden I wait. I go, hold on a second, you guys. I'm 64. This is too fast for me. I, and not only that, I don't think the music is swinging as much. You know what I mean? So I'm now I'm the, now I'm the old fart saying, hey. Let, let's not remember, let's not forget the music's supposed to swing and it can't all swing at 160 clicks so right. uh, but plus my hands just don't want to go that fast mm. but that's the inherent that's part of the the form bluegrass yeah. it's always pushing it, it you're is, always it you're always driving and and it uh, is but, pushing but that's it to super, the envelope but not beyond that that's hypersonic hyper you know speed thing is good for a couple of songs in a show but it, it, the whole show gets that way it's just exhausting not just the play for the players but i think for the audience too and there's so many great feels that a bluegrass band can create and when, and when you love bluegrass you know there's all these mid-tempo jimmy martin fields there's these these stanley brothers fields there's the osborne brothers there's there's, but I'm thinking, you know, there's different kinds of waltzes, bluegrass waltzes from the Flatten Scruggs waltzes to, you know, um, I guess you'd call more conventional Scottish waltzes and things like that, or Bill Monroe tunes. And um, they all have a different feeling, and a good bluegrass show should have a, a, a wide variety of feels. It shouldn't be, um, what do you call it? It's almost like a prejudice, like you think, this is what bluegrass is. It's super fast. It's a great part of bluegrass, but if that's the only thing you hear, you're losing three quarters of what the music's about. So, um, yeah, that's that's what's top of mind with most everybody when they think of bluegrass. They think, bam, it's it's loud, fast, and right. it's it's intricate and and intense. But and you go back to some of those records, even even back to the very first, you know, Bill Monroe, Flatten Scruggs records, and they had an accordion or they used uh, instruments which you never well, hear anymore, that. pretty much. But I mean, being somewhat of a purist, which is probably people would find odd, I'm a purist. I mean, bluegrass for me is these instruments and, and the dobro is part of it for me. It's these six instruments. Um, but what can you do with those six instruments and still have it be inside that bluegrass form? There's a lot. So, so you don't go for any diversion outside the six? I really don't. I mean, if I'm doing bluegrass, I want it to be that. I want to see what I can make from that. You know, just like if I'm playing with a string quartet, I want to see what I can make from that. But there's no reason why you shouldn't do it another way. And someday I'd like to do something where I start blending all these instrument instruments from different fields. Um, but um, there's a lot already to do. Um, but I guess what I'm getting at is that um, you can win in the short term by playing something super fast for the audience and they're going to go crazy and they're going to want more. But if that's all you give them, that's like just giving them pouring white flour and chocolate and candy and unhealthy food and no vegetables and, and you don't actually walk away feeling good if that's all you eat. And all you do is watch commercials and watch network television. You know, you make yourself sick. Hold on, watch a documentary once in a while, you know, eat something healthy. So, I mean, for the music, the music is healthier and stronger when it's varied. 
uh, and it can be varied within the tradition. It can be varied with, you know, by being more progressive, but it, it, it can't be a, uh, a stereotypical, um, you know, reducing it to this one thing that seems to sell. That, that, it won't really sell in the long run. It'll only be for a little while if you go that route. An example of the variety offered on My Bluegrass Heart. This is the fiddle medley titled Hunky Dory, with Bela joined by Stuart Duncan on fiddle, Jerry Douglas on dobro, David Grisman on mandolin, Edgar Meyer and Mark Schatz, both playing bass, and Billy Strings on guitar. Thanks for listening. Southern Songs and Stories is a part of the podcast lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media, with all the Osiris shows available at osirispod.com. You can also hear new episodes of this podcast on Bluegrass Planet Radio at bluegrassplanetradio.com. We're glad you have listened to this and would be even more so were you to share it with someone. It is super easy to follow us on your podcast platform of choice, and then it'll only take a minute to give it a good rating and where it's an option, a review. Great ratings and reviews especially will make Southern songs and stories and the artist it profiles more likely to be found by more people just like you. Thanks to Corey Askew for producing the radio adaptations of this series on Public Radio WNCW. Our theme songs are by Joshua Ming. I'm your host and producer, Joe Kendrick, and this is Southern Songs and Stories, the music of the South and the artists who make it. It's been great talking with you. I don't want to take up all your time, but I do have just one last question, which sure. is if there's anything that people might not commonly know about you that they would find interesting. <laughs> I don't know. What, 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 what's interesting to a person? Um, I'm from New York City, so I'd like, I've been joking around lately about that, um, you know, the taco sauce commercial for Pace Taco <laughs> that used to be about these, these guys saying... We're just taco sauce made in Brooklyn, New York. You can't trust a taco sauce from Brooklyn, New York. Well, I'm a banjo player from New York City, so you can't trust me either. But um, I did have a, a, a buckskin uh, jacket with fringe when I was 12, and I had a coonskin cap, and I wanted it to be Davy Crockett. And now I live in Tennessee for a lot longer than I lived in New York. Uh, so um, there's something. Yeah. <laughs>